0: Hello, I'm Ben Williams, Administrator of Science at the Virginia Museum of Natural History. Welcome to the VMNH Art, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on the podcast. My pleasure. So, Art uh, is a research associate here at the Virginia Museum of Natural History, a board member here at VMNH, and uh, is an extremely gifted entomologist. <laughs> You're very kind. <laughs> well, I will, I will preface this by telling you a story that uh, I don't think I've told you before, but um, my I think my first week working at the museum, uh, there was a board meeting. And so I met you at the board meeting, and yeah, very nice. And uh, that weekend, I thought, well, now that I'm working at the museum, I need to get a new uh, field guide to insects. So I go to Barnes & Noble, and I pick up the uh, National Wildlife Federation Guide to the Insects and Spiders of North America, and I open the back of it. And there is your picture. Um, As I'm like, well, this guy, this guy is a big deal. So, uh, <laughs> all based on that. All based on that. So okay. I, I'm very, uh, very happy to uh, have you talking to me. I appreciate you taking the time to do that.
1: Well, it's very nice to be here. My wife is a big fan of this, uh,
0: this series. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you, and thanks to uh, thanks to Paula. Let's uh, let's start at the beginning here. So, uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> So what was your uh, early experience with insects? What was it that made you decide, you know, I want to be an entomologist. This is this is the career choice for me.
1: Well, it's interesting you ask this because I remember it very clearly, but I didn't sort out all the details until after I moved to Virginia thanks to IMDB, the Internet Movie Database. Back in the early 60s, I saw a black and white movie that featured an ant farm. And that's what did it for me. And uh, from that point on, my uh, parents took me to the library. I was reading all kinds of books and it just went from there. But it wasn't until I moved to Virginia that I thought, I'm going to track down this movie. What was the film that got me started? And it's a 1947 black and white comedy called The Bride Goes Wild, starring Van Johnson and June Allison. And I've Always had a thing for June Allison. (laughs) But it did feature uh, an ant farm, and I remember that very clearly. And when I first tracked this down, um, that movie was not available. It was only on bootlegs and whatnot, and now it is available. You can stream it here and there. But I've decided not to see it again, (laughs) at least for now, because I don't want to have that experience that I look back on this film and think, oh my gosh, that's what started all this. (laughs) But I I was fascinated by ants uh, initially, and and I had a a very good librarian who ordered uh, insect books for me, and I read them voraciously and uh, ran out of children's titles, and I remember when she guided me over to the other side of the library, and we looked at the big kid books, and suddenly I'm looking at reference books and textbooks. Um, and uh, I just I couldn't get enough. Did the
0: the transition from ants to beetles come early on or was that later on in your
1: career? Oh that was that was much later. I I was um, always interested in looking for all kinds of insects uh, in our yard. I grew up in the fringes of the Mojave Desert in Southern California and my parents were very supportive. My dad always had a Praying mantis in the house, you know, in late summer. They were always named Big John, Little John. I don't think most of them weren't Johns at all. I think they were <laughs> Joannas or what have you. But so there were insects around. They encouraged my uh, interest, but I was interested in all kinds of insects until I got into um, high school. And uh, this started when I was 4 uh, H'er. Um, I didn't have chickens and goats and rabbits and all that sort of thing, but I had insects and none of the adults were comfortable with their knowledge about insects, so basically I ran my own show (laughs) as a kid. And I engineered my first uh, field trip to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles County and got a behind-the-scenes tour of entomology and befriended the people that ultimately hired me there years later, so that was great. But I also met someone there during a visit who later invited me on a summer field trip to Arizona, and I uh, toured Arizona, um, New Mexico, and Texas with him, and several other trips in California. And I was collecting all insects then, but I decided I I needed to specialize. And uh, thanks to him, he was a beetle guy. I had more beetles than anything else, and by the time I was a senior in high school, I realized that I knew more about scarab beetles than anything else, thanks to Bob Duff. He's the one that started all this. And I just sort of went from there. So I'd, I'd have to say, by the time I was in high school, I knew I was going to be a coleopterist. And by the time I was uh, uh, graduating high school, I was focused on scarabs.
0: It's one of those things where you, you know, there has to be something more than just, well, you know, I had the most beetles. You know, what is it about beetles that, uh, that really... You know, it makes them interesting. I know this is a, a topic you've well, written some books
1: about. I, I I like it that you think that my motivations are loftier than they really are. <laughs> <laughs> I just think they're cool. Yeah. I, I never know how to answer that question. I've been asked that you know over and over again, and and for me, um, it's beetles are everywhere. It's the ubiquity of beetles that attracts me. I can step out the door and I can find beetles, and even if it's the same. Uh, species of beetle I see all the time. It's in a different place on a different day. There's always an opportunity to learn something new, put another dot on a map, if you will. And uh, they're a lot easier to prepare than butterflies and moths. I mean, I went through a stage where I was very interested in butterflies and moths. Um, but, geez, to spread those wings all the time and all the space and time it takes, you know, just everything just sort of kept pushing me um, to beetles. But I, I feel very fortunate that I was very much a generalist Um, up until high school because I had that experience and honestly I'm sort of bucking the trend of specialization. I say I'm interested in scarab beetles but for the last 20 years I've been interested in all beetles but I still have a hand in other groups too because people want to know about other insects too and I'd like to be able to answer their questions.
0: Tell me a little bit about your um, educational career so after high school, uh, college and then your PhD.
1: Well I will say uh, in high school, I had a, the wonderful experience of being forced to take summer school <laughs> um, because my sister had to repeat a course, and uh, I was the one that had the driver's license. So <laughs> my job was to take her to class every day. And I thought, since I'm here, I might as well take a course too. And I took a, a, a field biology course, and it's the best course I've ever taken ever. And we had to make several collections, uh, including an insect collection, but we did, we pressed plant specimens, we did vegetation mapping, uh, did study skins of reptiles and mammals and birds. Uh, It was an intense, uh, wonderful course, and I'm still in touch with one of the uh, teachers, who was my biology teacher, too. Uh, Mr. Brister, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so that sort of really propelled me. And uh, Bob Duff, who I joined in all these trips to the Southwest, he kept talking about uh, Dr. Elbert Sleeper at Cal State Long Beach, and he uh, was a well-known weevil worker. Uh, And so I thought, gosh, here we've got a a world-renowned coleopterist right here in Southern California. I need to find out more about this. And so I visited him uh, at the uh, campus of uh, Cal State Long Beach and signed up. And so that's where I did my bachelor's degree and my master's degree. And it was during that time that uh, my best friend and, and college roommate had been invited to do his doctorate Uh, at the University of Pretoria in South Africa, and I was very envious. Mm -hmm. And I thought that if, uh, at the very least, I would join him for a month, and we'd go out collecting together and see Southern Africa. But uh, pretty soon, uh, Chuck Bellamy, my good friend, um, started lobbying me to join him there. Uh, They had a brand new professor who was looking for doctoral students, and uh, he was also interested in scarabs and thought we might be a good Match, and so a year later, um, there I was <laughs> at the University of Pretoria in South Africa studying scarabs, and that's what I did for three years. Traveled all over Southern Africa, learning about scarabs. You know, there's so much
0: variation. You know, just I'm I'm amazed going from Virginia to South Carolina. You know, the different insects and things sure. are fun. What was it like going from Southern California
1: to South Africa? Oh, talk about having your you know, intellectual hair blown back. <laughs> I mean, it, it was amazing. Um, my time in South Africa was my you know, ADBC moment. Everything's before or after. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very different. The only regret I have um, during that time, looking back on it 35 years later, is that I wasn't more of a generalist. I would love to go back with the eye that I have now and uh, work with more beetles. I was totally focused on scarabs. If it wasn't a scarab, I could have cared less unless somebody had a particular interest in a group of beetles and I knew about it. I would certainly collect them for them for their research, but otherwise I didn't pay any attention at all. But as a photographer and more of a generalist coleopterist, I'd love to go back.
0: For uh, folks listening who might not be familiar, what is a, a scarab beetle?
1: Well, scarab beetles are, uh, most people are probably familiar with the plain brown or black June beetles or May beetles, June bugs. that are flying around your porch lights or clogging up your pool filters Mm -hmm. or buzzing around at night. Uh, Those happen to be the scarabs that I specialize in, the plain ones. The big fancy ones with the horns and bright colors, Mm -hmm. those are very well known. Mm -hmm. Um, I focus on the ones that are, are lesser known. But what makes a scarab a scarab is the fact that they have these little leaf-like articles on the end of their antennae that they can fan out or they can fold together tightly into a club. And that distinguishes scarab beetles from almost all other um, beetles. Um, Dung beetles are another group of scarabs that uh, people are probably familiar with. I'm sure everybody, certainly on the East Coast, is very much aware of Japanese beetles. Those are scarabs. There's the uh, green June beetle, uh, which is also a very familiar uh, scarab to most on the on the East Coast.
0: Yeah, it, it's uh,
1: it's funny talking
0: about the May beetles. That you know, I joke with people. We have people bring in insects to be identified, and I always joke that if you want to stump us, uh, don't bring in something that's really impressive and weird looking. Bring in <laughs> yeah, the most right.
1: nondescript ground right. beetle you can
0: possibly find. Right. That's uh, that's
1: those are the chafers. That's what I mm-hmm. work with. The only way you're going to be able to distinguish the species easily. Is to dissect the male reproductive organs, um, and I think that was part of the attraction. You know, i just grab all the ones I could find, and then I'd spend a month opening them up. It was like Christmas time. You know, <laughs> I didn't know what I was going to get until it was a proverbial box of chocolates. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. So, so after uh, South Africa, what was the the next stop on your journey?
1: Well, that was an interesting time. Um, I remember sitting in my Uh, office, which was a converted broom closet at the University of Pretoria. It was a very narrow space, but it worked very well for me for three years. I was quite happy, and it was all mine. One of uh, my last uh, papers that I published while I was in South Africa was in press, or excuse me, I'd been published, and I was reading it, and I was feeling kind of self-satisfied, and then I started realizing that for all the work that I put into this paper, if I'm lucky, there might be 40, 50 people in the world that would bother to read the abstract. Mm-hmm. And a very select group of those people would actually sit down and read the paper from cover to cover. And I started thinking then that I, I wanted a bigger audience, but I didn't really know what that meant. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was off, when I returned to the United States, I was looking for work. And uh, just to fill the time and the bank account, I took a job at the Natural History Museum again. This was my second job there. I knew everyone there. They knew me. And they hired me as a technician in entomology, and I thought I'd be in a great position to hear about museum jobs. That's what I was trained to do. Um, And the museum had just received a $2 million grant from the Parsons Foundation to start an insect zoo. And at the time, insect zoos were very uncommon uh, in the United States. There were only three at that time the one at the Smithsonian, one at the Cincinnati Zoo, and another one at the San Francisco Zoo. And so here was an opportunity to develop from the ground up, you know, the fourth insect zoo in the United States. But I thought, what a nightmare keeping all those little hungry mouths alive. <laughs> I mean, that sounded like work to me. Give me a dead pin specimen anytime. But I literally woke up one night and thought, I can do this job. I've always been interested in informal science education. Even as I was a kid, I was collecting things, putting them in jars, putting them on a card table. Instead of selling lemonade, I'm just talking to people that would come (laughs) and and listen to me and want to learn something about insects. So um, I began lobbying people in the museum, telling them I was really interested in this job. And darn if they didn't hire me. And it was uh, probably the, the best job I've ever had because the, the insect zoo was in the education division and the chief of education came up to me and the sole direction she gave me was, I assume you know what needs to be done. <laughs> <laughs> so that was my mandate for 10 years. Oh, that's amazing. And I ran with it. Um, you know, I was out collecting, you know, we had nothing. And so I went out one weekend and uh, collected a bunch of things, and the insect zoo started out as ten terraria sitting on a counter in the Discovery Center, mm-hmm. and then eventually I got my own space, uh, and we had um, up to uh, seventy-five species of arthropods either on display or in the back at any given time. I had things I could rotate out, and uh, that was a I loved doing that. It was a, I had a bit of a crisis of con- conscience in the beginning because I was trained as a researcher and that's really where my heart is but I really enjoyed informal science education and I felt like I'd abandoned my calling in the beginning I was also concerned about what my colleagues would think that you know here I am on a research track and suddenly I abandoned it all to go work in an insect zoo you know but I got over it and they were all very supportive so Um, but I remember I had several wonderful experiences during that time, one of which is I created a a traveling insect zoo that would go out to schools and summer camps and shopping centers and libraries and I would handle these animals. I had uh, uh, insect puppets to demonstrate you know life cycles and things like that. I never gave them cute voices. I'm not that clever or talented. I'm the straight man in all this. Um, But that worked really well and eventually it got to be a business within my job and I hired a couple of technicians to actually do the the programs and it uh, it, it worked very well. But I spent um, one uh, week in the 4-H building at the Los Angeles County Fair which is one of the largest fairs in the world and I had a table set up with displays and for seven days, 10 hours a day, I answered a barrage of questions about insects, some of them based on the cases that were before them, but most of them just random questions. And that's where I really learned that one, people are really fascinated by insects, and two, most people don't have any idea where to go if they want information about them. And three, I got an idea what were the kinds of things that people wanted to know. And so that whole experience really informed how I teach, you know, now at the university level, how I write, um, how I approach many things that I do, especially with, with the public. It was one of the most worthwhile things I've ever done.
0: I have to ask, did, did the insect zoo lead to Bug City or does this come later?
1: <laughs> well, the um, working at the insect zoo and at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County was a great place to be. Uh, It's the uh, third or fourth largest natural history museum in the United States, depending on what statistics you're using. I think there's sort of back and forth there with the Field Museum in Chicago. But you were always there if somebody was looking for talent to serve as a consultant on a film or some sort of a project. And I uh, wound up being a consultant on a number of interesting projects. And one of them, was building a giant robotic bug exhibit called Backyard Monsters. It's still out there now. I have heard of this. I (laughs) somehow didn't know you were involved with it. I was involved with that. I was the initial consultant and uh, uh, helped them select the animals that they built into the robotics and oversaw the details of the movements and all that. And I worked with a number of exhibitors and fabricators, uh, multiple companies, to develop all the ancillary exhibits that went along with that. Through that, I was introduced to a publisher who knew a guy in New York that sold beetles as well as dinosaur <laughs> skeletons. The company was Maxilla and Mandible. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I don't believe they're in existence anymore, but a very well known at that time. And the two of them always wanted to publish a a coffee table book about Beatles in in his collection. And so uh, I was approached to write this coffee table book. And um, I immediately accepted, having no idea what I was getting into. I'd never written anything popular like that before Mm -hmm. in my life. And uh, I decided early on that Misery Loves Company, and I got my friend Chuck Bellamy involved, who's the one that got me to South Africa, And so the two of us wrote that first book, An Inordinate Fondness for beetles. From the uh, Darwin quote, is that right? No, uh, J.B.S. Haldane. He was, uh, 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 as I recall, an English geneticist who was a well-known atheist. And uh, reportedly, um, there was a cleric that asked him pointedly, you know, well, what does studying the creator's creation tell you about the creator himself, and, and Haldane was reported to have replied, an inordinate fondness for beetles, a reference to the tremendous diversity of beetles, the fact that they're the largest number group of animals. Once we'd settled on the title, an inordinate fondness for beetles, uh, Stephen Jay Gould came out with his column in Natural History magazine debunking the whole thing. Uh, Haldane was asked in his own lifetime if he ever said that, and he basically responded, it sounds like something he should have said. <laughs> and he began quoting back the quote that was given to him. But anyway, it really doesn't matter. It's, it's the idea that uh, was of interest. And so that's sort of what started my writing career. But working at the Natural History Museum, again, people would uh, reach out to the museum to see if there were people who could assist with projects. And that's how Bug City Came about, and I was approached by David Yarnell, who was a producer uh, in Hollywood, and he we met, and he wanted to talk to me about doing a series of educational videos that would use BBC and Oxford scientific footage uh, intercut with a couple of on-stage hosts, you know, doing different things with insects, and he uh, was hoping I would be interested in being a consultant on that, and I said, sure. Well, just like all the other insect projects that I was approached with, it was always in November, December, and we need insects now. Where can we yep. get insects now? <laughs> and cheaply, quickly, quickly, cheaply. Very annoying. Backyard <laughs> Monsters started out that way. It was right at the end of summer, so we still managed to get a big couple big showy things. But that's why there's also some rather mundane things in that, too, because that's what was available. The only insects that I knew about that would be in profusion and of interest were the overwintering monarch butterflies along the coast of California, and I was part of a National Science Foundation grant to study the overwintering monarchs uh, along the coast of California with high school students, and that's that's a whole other story. So I took the producers. Uh, on a very cold uh, early morning trip up the coast and we wandered out in this grove of eucalyptus trees, a very unnatural environment, but that's where the monarchs are. And um, so I'm pointing out, you know, there are clusters of monarchs hanging from the trees and we estimated there are somewhere between five and 10,000 individuals at this site. Some of them we'd been tagging, sticking little adhesive uh, tags to them with numbers on them. So if we found them somewhere, we could track their movements. And so I started pointing this out and pointing that out, and uh, David would say, stop, right there. And somebody took their coat off and they put the coat on me and uh, said, now point up there again and start talking. And they put a camera on me and then somebody said, wait, hold up, wait, hold that thought. They come up and they pop up my collar, like, you know, the typical TV sort of thing and say, okay, now say the whole thing you were saying again. That day, I became one of the hosts for What's Bugging You. You know, I was going to be behind the scenes, and now I'm very much front and center. David's wife was a very uh, well-known Hollywood agent, and she had a number of uh, well-known clients. And so there are lots of names being bandied around who would be my uh, uh, co-host on this thing. And uh, it turned out to be Christina Ricci. And so that's how it started, and um, I didn't meet her until we actually started filming, but before that, um, I was aware of some of the preparations, and I was working with the writer, sort of banging heads on what we were going to talk about and how things would be presented, and so it was my big Hollywood experience. This falls into the banner of I'll try anything once, if it's (laughs) entomological or remotely so. So uh, that was when um, I noticed there were all these bird rubber bird heads on a shelf, and I thought, oh, well, David must be working on another project. So I came in, and uh, he says, you know, I figured it out. We're going to have sort of a a wise-cracking character that's going to be as part of what's bugging you, and his name's going to be Bugsy Seagull.
0: (laughs) Because all the kids are crazy about 30s gangsters who were murdered
1: horribly. Right. So... I thought he was pulling my leg. And so I made some really sarcastic remark. I said, so what made you think that a bird was the way to put over the top a a show about insects? And he leaned back in his chair and very seriously said it was a moment of pure genius. (laughs) And so Bugsy Siegel was born. And... Maybe you can fill in some of the gaps later, but uh, he was voiced by a very well known character actor. Um, and the puppeteers that uh, moved Bugsy's arms and all that stuff were the puppeteers in the very first Alien movie with Sigourney Weaver. And, you know, this is before Digital Anything, and I got to know the puppeteers fairly well. It was a husband and wife team, and they gave me. A VHS version of of Alien in the letterbox edition, oh, wow. so it wasn't the cut off you know mm-hmm. bit that you see on TV at that time. So anyway, that was that was really interesting, and I brought in some of my friends to do the actual bug wrangling, and you know we finally got up to it, and it was two weeks solid of being in the studio, uh, filming, um, and it was it was exciting, it was stressful, <laughs> very stressful. <laughs> But we did 13 episodes with the idea that it could become uh, a pilot, you know, or if it was picked up by anybody, but it wasn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I found out that I have very limited patience for that kind of, I'm I'm a one-take person. I'm really good the first time. If I have to start thinking about what I'm doing, I'm in trouble, I'm not an actor. (laughs) I am an educator, I am a scientist, (laughs) but you know, there's only so much that's gonna carry me in a vehicle such as this.
0: Well, you know, I will say uh, when I found out about the existence of Bug City, I immediately went to YouTube and I found a couple of episodes. And I will say there are two reasons to watch Bug City. And the one reason is that the footage is amazing and your commentary is is great. You know, it's a really good show. And like if if it had come out when I was slightly younger, it would have been my favorite show of all time as a a young kid who loved uh, loved and still loves bugs. The second reason to watch is to see your absolute seething hatred of bugsy people <laughs> just occasionally percolate to the surface.
1: And it's always subtle, but if you if you know what you're looking for, you know, it's uh, Well, you it's know, great. I, I heard the writer talking to the producers and the cameraman one day when she threw in some lines that actually had me addressing him because I refused to talk to him for a long time. <laughs> And I think I, threw, I made one snarky line. They let me use a snarky tone, and they were all saying, he actually spoke to the puppet. So that was, that was a big deal that, yeah, they knew about that. Yeah, that was, uh, that was interesting. But I, I still, for a while, I, I received uh, emails. People would track me down, and it was um, someone who had grown up with it. Mm-hmm. and loved it, and now a couple of people who grew up with it are parents and wishing they could share. Is it on DVD? That's the big question. I don't know that it is. I I think it might be on Amazon Prime for purchase. Oh, you're kidding. I think it might be. I have a full set of the VHS, but I, I have to say that I, I watched it with a group of 4-H kids once, and it was, it was gut-wrenching because... Uh, initially I saw it just as all the missed opportunities. That's all I have in my head is that, mm-hmm. gee, if we only done this or I remember the battle that it took to get to that point. But when I calmed down, mm-hmm. took a deep breath, and saw it through the eyes of the kids that you know, the intended audience, it is fun. Yeah. <laughs> and but it's it's hard to get into that mindset because I, I was very invested at the time and I'm I'm very proud of it. Um but yeah, it was it was an interesting interesting time. And no, Christina Ricci and I aren't you know exchanging holiday cards or anything. But Christina, if you're listening, would um, yeah. love to hear from you sometime.
0: Same, big fan of your work on Yellow Jackets. Career best in, <laughs> in my in my estimation. <laughs> well, so that uh, that brings us up to I believe the late nineties. Uh, Boy, we're digging deep, aren't we? Digging deep. So <laughs> so how uh, how did you end up uh, coming to Virginia
1: to Richmond. A woman. Uh, I, I met my wife Paula. Uh, we, uh, our dads went to high school together. Our grandmothers were friends. And uh, occasionally, when w- my family would go camping on the Central Coast, we would spend, of California, we would spend a day with her family. And uh, Paula was uh, then very much a tomboy, and uh, she and my sister would sort of gang up on me for whatever (laughs) reasons. And uh, Paula was uh, pitching a softball to me. I was 13, she was 14, and none of the pitches were to my liking. So I remember grabbing the ball and pitching it to myself and hitting it with everything I could. I was a six-foot, 200-pound eighth grader, Mm And I hit her in the face with a line drive, just (laughs) creamed her. She went down. And um, if you look at her today, you know, it looks like she's making a slight left-hand turn with her nose. You know, that's my handiwork. (laughs) Um, But we had absolutely no contact after that for about a quarter of a century. But uh, our parents were very good friends and, and so, uh, you know, her parents knew my comings and goings and that I'd gone to South Africa and I'd come back and I was working at the Natural History Museum and Paula called um, and left a message for me and uh, saying that, you know, just trying to remind me who she was and I was vaguely aware of who she might be. I vaguely remember hitting somebody in the face with a baseball, but she was suggesting that she finally had had the corrective surgery done and and was thinking of contacting a lawyer and thought I should call her. So I did. And one thing led to another, and uh, we wound up getting married on her parents' 50th anniversary because all our families were together. So she had been living in Richmond uh, for 20 years, and uh, initially she had called with a bug question. She was working in downtown Richmond, and there was a big... Um, uh, insect, a big stonefly or something like that on the window. It was right off the James River. And uh, everybody in the office was aware about it. And she had a reputation for being, you know, nature girl. You know, mm-hmm. she would know the answers to these things. And she said, I know somebody that will. So that's why she reached out to me. One thing led to another. I, I left the perfectly good job at the Natural History Museum 10 years to come here. And the rest is history. Nice. Well, and, of course, this
0: led to uh,
1: what's bugging you. Right. Um, What's Bugging You uh, started out as a uh, newspaper column in the Richmond Times Dispatch. And uh, it all began when I moved a bag of potting soil on our porch, and there were a bunch of greenhouse stone crickets underneath. People know them as cave crickets or camel crickets or sprockets or sprickets Mm -hmm. or whatever. They look very spidery and crickety. And I I had never seen them before in mass like that. And Paula said that, uh, well, you know, people would be interested in knowing about them. You should write something about it and send it to the paper. Mm -hmm. So I wrote up something. I had no idea what I was doing (laughs) and I heard nothing. Mm -hmm. And two weeks went by and I heard from an editor and she said um, uh, someone just found this lying on their desk and thought maybe I should see it. And I did and we'd like to have you write for us on the fifth Thursday of every month. So there's only a handful of months that have a fifth Thursday. So that's how I started, but eventually it got to be a monthly column with my photographs. And that lasted for several years. Um, and then it went away. And a few years went by, and I was invited to be on a national public radio gardening show uh, on, a, on a call-in show. And uh, they set me up at uh, then WCVE, now VPM in Richmond um, to make it all sound like we're all in the same room talking together. And so I was on this hour-long national gardening show uh, taking callers' questions about insects. And so that was kind of fun. When it was all over, Steve Clark, who was a well-known, still is a well-known announcer, but now retired at VPM, uh, said, we need to do something together. But it took a couple of years and I contacted him, um, we, were, we stayed in touch, but I said, uh, do you want to see if we can get something going? And so he came over with his recorder and I just started pulling out drawers of Beatles and talking about them. And he used those to sell the idea of some sort of a weekly bug program uh, on the radio. And that's what became What's Bugging You on the Radio. It aired every Tuesday morning during uh, NPR's morning edition.
0: What were some sort of the, uh, the, the favorite questions you got over the years, strangest questions
1: for well, us? Well, you know, initially, we didn't get a lot of uh, queries from the public. Usually, the shows were initiated by, and I say show, it was a three-minute segment, let's be <laughs> honest here. Usually, it was, uh, you know, based on something I had seen or read, and we sort of went from there, or what Steve had found in his, his house or saw in his yard, but after a while, people would start sending in questions to the station, and they'd just want to know about the biology of something. Usually it was pretty uh, basic stuff. Mm-hmm. But later, we did get some really interesting ones, and the one that comes to mind is uh, somebody wanted to know if centipedes could fly. And I thought, <laughs> well, no. You know, Of yeah. all, of all of the insects and their relatives, only insects have wings. Centipedes have lots of legs, but they don't have any wings. So he sent me a photograph and it looked like a flying centipede. (laughs) And I honestly didn't know what I was looking at. I knew it wasn't a centipede, but it was taken by his security camera, his doorbell camera. And uh, he started watching later and discovered it was a mosquito that had flown past the camera. And the resolution was so bad, the mosquito was going, "Eh, eh, eh, eh," (laughs) you know, stop, start, stop, start. And so you saw these legs and wings and blurry things as it was going by. And it looked like a centipede going across. So we did a little bit on that. Mm -hmm. Um, We did little bits. So there was a veterinarian that was a big supporter of the radio station and loved our show. And he pulled a uh, botfly larva out of the leg of a puppy and uh, uh, gave me the specimen, and I took a picture of that, and we talked about that, you know, Mm -hmm. so it was things like that. Did some great interviews with people who had written books about insects, or doing uh, interesting research, or uh, working in conservation projects to protect some rare walking stick found on a remote island out in the middle of the ocean, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And, of course, many of these people were my friends, so it was Mm -hmm. very easy to, you know, get them to take part in this. So I'm, I'm very proud of this, and it wouldn't have worked without Steve Clark. I mean, he, he edited the pieces. He made me sound a lot more uh, articulate than I am, and uh, just did a fantastic job. And it was great to hear from the public and my colleagues at the uh, University of Richmond and Randolph-Macon. They enjoyed the pieces, too. You know, I'm happy to talk to, you know, the public at large, but I'm always a little worried about what my colleagues think, you know, they're going to think I'm dumbing down the science or, but that, that's not the, that's not the feedback I'm getting. Yeah.
0: Well, and of course, uh, what's bugging you, you know, continues today in a fashion with these VPM uh, animated segments that are just fantastic.
1: Well thank you. Um, That came about. Steve retired after 33 years Mm -hmm. uh, at the end of 2019, so that was nice. We got to wrap up What's Bugging You. It aired on the last day of uh, 2019 and um, I was pleased that the station left all 450 plus segments on the uh, website so you can hear them all. Mm -hmm. And then there was some talk about animating them. Someone had approached Steve, uh, I think it was a school, that wanted to do an animation project and, and animate segments of, of what's bugging you. And honestly, I wasn't interested. Mm. I just wasn't. And, uh, but Steve always remembered that, and he sort of talked up the idea around the station. Well, eventually it, it caught on. So we were, Steve and I were tasked with going through those 450 segments and picking six, there are now seven total, but we started out with six that we could animate. And what that meant was is that he took the three minute segments, which are already cut really tight, mm-hmm. and cut those down to two minutes. <laughs> and then he scored them. He found the music and put the, the music to it. And then he um, sent them to me and I picked out all the source material that would lead to the animation. And the animation was the sticky part. They uh, enlisted the services of three different animators to go with one of the segments just so we can get an eye on what they look like. And there were several of us involved, and uh, all of us hated at least one of them. (laughs) (laughs) But for me, the horror was I realized I'm going to be in this. There's going to be my likeness in this. Of course, my voice, I get that, but it never occurred to me my likeness would be in it. And one of the animations was showing Steve and I as stick figures, you know, and with the angular heads and the jaws that go straight up and down when <laughs> oh, you're no. talking. Yeah, and I just I can't live with that. <laughs> so things just kind of sat for a while. And then I saw a, um, a wonderful documentary that's now on PBS called Love Bugs, and it's a documentary about uh, Charlie and Lois O'Brien, and this is a couple of entomologists, Charlie unfortunately is no longer with us, that donated uh, a massive collection of insects to Arizona State University along with some cash and property that uh, totaled about $10 million. This was big news. It was on NPR. It was all over the place. And I was interested in this for many reasons, but I I don't know Charlie and Lois very well, but I knew them well enough, and so I was interested in just seeing it come together. So I watched the documentary, and when they did the the history of their lives, how they came together, how they did different things, they were animated. Mm -hmm. And I loved the style of the animation, and I immediately sent the link to everybody and said, check out the animations here. This is what it should look like. And everybody agreed and David Vinson uh, was our animator, Um, he did a tremendous job. So everybody had a a really great role. Steve edited the original segments, put the music, you know, so made it sound great. And then I listened to everything and grabbed all what I thought would be the visual elements. and I sent all that to David and he would put a storyboard together and come up with the first iteration. And David would always put a little bit of himself. There's a little bit of humor that I never intended Mm -hmm. that took a tiny bit of getting used to. In fact, the first time he did that, I I was not a fan. Mm -hmm. And I showed it to my wife and she loved it. And I thought, well, you know, my wife is my audience. She reads and listens to everything I do. She's great. So I thought, okay, if it works for Paula, it better work for me. Mm -hmm. So uh, it went from there. And that's how we produced them all. And so we could get one, one done a month. Amongst everything else that we were we were all doing, and one of them garnered some attention. Nice.
0: So, <laughs> so are, are there plans to uh, produce more of those in the future?
1: I don't know. Uh, there's there's talk about it. You know, like I say, the fact that uh, one of the episodes won an Emmy. Yeah. Um, you know, that's pretty amazing. You know that I have this statuette. That's kind of cool. It's something i ever aspired to, yeah. but uh, there it is. Uh, there, there's talk about it, and right now they we have seven. Uh, segments now and the station has developed educational modules around each one and those will be launched on the PBS national website uh, sometime either early or late
0: this year or early the next. Yeah I've I've seen all of them they're just fantastic little informative pieces I really like the animation. Thank you I'm
1: very proud of them like I say with Bug City it was kind of a uh, now that I've had lots of years, mm-hmm. I can appreciate what we did, but it was hard to watch them. But with, with uh, What's Bugging You, the animated episodes, I love them. I share them with people. I have no hesitation whatsoever. My favorite one, uh, though, is um, Booger Beetles and uh, uh, Fecal Shields. Uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why, why the station didn't send that off for consideration for a movie, I don't know. You know. Go figure.
0: Well, yeah, I, I think you can send that off for, you know, you've got to complete the EGOT now, you know, it's a, a
1: Grammy, Oscar, and Tony. Well, a know. couple people suggested that to me, and I had to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> I better get busy, you know, time's yeah. running out.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of being busy, let me ask you about the, the books you have written, because um, you know, you've written a number of books, the Field Guide I mentioned at the top of this episode, and then... Uh, The Field Guide to the Beatles of Eastern North America. um, The recently released Field Guide to Beatles of Western North America. And uh, you
1: have another Beatle book that's coming out in March,
0: if I'm not mistaken.
1: That's correct. Um, Yeah, The the Lives of Beatles. Mm -hmm. Um, I was approached by uh, an English uh, publisher, a publisher in the U.K., to uh, write a uh, popular book about beetles that would be profusely illustrated and I immediately saw an opportunity to write sort of a follow-up, if you will, to my first book, An Inordinate Fondness for Beatles, which came out in you know, 1996, so a few years back. And um, uh, that will be out in March and uh, I just started another book with the same team. Um, and the books, both of these books will actually be published by Princeton University Press, which published my Eastern and Western books. Uh, I'm also involved as a, one of three co-managing uh, editors of the uh, second edition of American Beatles. This is a handbook to the identification of Beatles for Canada and the United States. And that is slated for 2026. I'm only writing small parts of that because we're working with... Uh, Dozens of specialists in different families of beetles and cobbling together uh, this book that uh, will provide illustrated keys so people can identify um, um, beetles that they find here in North America. You know, in that vein, I I have a a
0: very well used copy of Beetles of Eastern North America, and you know, if you follow any of the uh, Ben in Nature Facebook posts, uh, if there's one about beetles, I have probably used that book to identify it. And every time I look at these field guides, and this is, these are massive field guides with hundreds, if not thousands, of different uh, beetles in them, I always just think, how on earth do you sit down and write <laughs> something like this? And especially, you, know, you take most of the, if not all, of the photos as well, right?
1: Um, I, I wish. I'd like mm-hmm. to take credit. I, I take most of the photos in those mm-hmm. books, but I certainly don't take them all. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm very lucky to have lots of friends who are excellent photographers, most of them better than me, all of them better than me. I'm, I'm the, the low bar. And, you know, anything that's better than mine, I'll, I'll consider for the book. It is, it is a challenge. In the beginning, um, it's very difficult to weed things out, and uh, over the years, I've learned... Uh, just through experience to include in a field guide mainly species that people are already familiar with. In other words, things that they're likely to see Mm -hmm. that are supported by good images. I mean, because, and that's the balance. You know, you want something that's informative, something that will present information on things that people are likely to see, but if you don't have a good image available, um, it's not gonna have the same impact. And I've, I've had to leave really uh, common species out because there are no good pictures out there people like myself often don't spend a lot of time taking pictures of pests you know, mm-hmm. the things that are nibbling on your packaged foods in your pantries you just want to be rid of it and that's it and uh, um, there are not a lot of good pictures of things that are like that out there that are readily available there are people that have taken excellent photos um, but uh, they charge. For those images. And I'm not above charging for an image as a photographer. I firmly believe in that. But my publishers (laughs) tend to draw a line. When you have a book that is richly illustrated with a thousand or more images, the uh, budgets for photography are very, very small. Mm -hmm. And so you really have to to pick and choose. And of course, now with uh, camera equipment being what it is, um, anybody can take a good picture as long as they've got a good eye and a little patience. And so Fortunately, there are a lot of very accessible images, images out there. So that's, going back to what you were saying, it's being familiar with the fauna, mm-hmm. uh, what's in the area, what are people going to be asking about, what, what are they going to see when they're out and about. Sometimes I'll include things that are zingers, you know, that are very, uh, I have a good picture, and it's got to be in. And I figure if someone saw it, they'd see it, you know, but honestly, they're seldom encountered. Mm -hmm. Um, And they're both the Eastern and Western books are sprinkled with things like that. Well, they're I highly recommend both volumes. Well, they're not. I just want to say they're not really field guides. These are reference books. They are heavy. They're big. They're telephone book size. For any of you that remember telephone books (laughs) out there, Uh, they they are they are beasts. But uh, as as certainly as a desk reference or something you want to leave in your car, (laughs) um, uh, they seem to work very well. I've, I've had. Nothing but good feedback about them. Yeah. Like I said,
0: some fairly unusual stuff I've found. I've been able to uh, uh, figure out what they are thanks to that book. And I barely know what I'm doing. So, I mean, the
1: normal person. Well, see, that always that always is very gratifying mm-hmm. to me because every once in a while, you know, once this thing is done, you think, God, did I, did I do this right? You know, did I get it right? I mean, there's a couple of things that I think, yeah, if I could do it differently, I would. Any project is like that. But I love it when you... Find something, and you write about it, and you mention the the book. I mean, and thank you for the plugs, by the way. Absolutely. But I realize, you know, you're the audience that I intended these books for. Someone who is, you know, doesn't necessarily have a background in insects or beetles, but certainly is aware of them and interested in them and wants to know more. And more often than not, you can find them in this book. Yeah. Well,
0: If, if you, the listener, are a weirdo like me, I cannot <laughs> recommend them <it> enough. <laughs> yeah, I would... Um, Uh, Be remiss if I did not ask, uh, how did you become involved with the Virginia Museum
1: of Natural History? Oh, that's a great question. When I moved to Richmond in 2000, I didn't know anybody here. And I just started reaching out to find out who else was doing entomology in the state. And uh, there were a couple of people that I, I literally looked up online, Uh, in a membership society, membership list, to see who lived in Virginia. And um, I started asking around and everybody said, have you met Richard Hoffman? Mm -hmm. And so it became obvious I needed to reach out to Dr. Hoffman here at the the museum. And I made my first trip down here that summer of 2000. I came here with uh, my wife and our nine-year-old son. And went away that day with eighteen drawers of unidentified beetles and a microscope. <laughs> you know, he put me to work right oh, away, yeah. and I became a research associate. Then, and um, I'm a I'm a museum person. I love museums. Uh, I will freely admit, though, that it's rare that I walk in the front door of a museum. I've <laughs> walked in a lot of back doors over the years because I tend to work in the off public areas. You know, working in the research collections, but I love museums. You know, I. Uh, Museums are very important to me. Uh, I remember my first trips to the Natural History Museum in Los Angeles very well, and and the people I met and the resources that were available to me, and to um, discover that there was a resource like that here in Virginia, I I wish it was closer, I'll be honest, (laughs) you know, it's it's a little over a three hour drive here from Richmond. And this was back in the days when the museum was in the uh, school on Douglas Mm -hmm. Avenue. And I just happened to be here one cold, blustery December day when the Golden Shovels were breaking ground here where this uh, illustrious institution now sits. And uh, like I say, I've been uh, in and out of this museum for over 20 years. Wow. I also knew Dr.
0: Hoffman way back when. I think You've been up as a kid, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, uh, I volunteered uh, in his lab when I was in fifth grade, so that would have been... I can't do math, but sometime in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, he was he was a remarkable individual.
1: He was a real gentleman mm-hmm. and very scholarly, very quiet-spoken, but a very wry sense of humor. And I liked him immediately. And even though he was a world authority on millipedes, which is still aces in my book— yeah. He knew the Beatles of Virginia better than I probably ever will, you know, because first of all, he grew up here, you know, he knows all the nooks and crannies and where all the beetles are buried, if you will. Uh, he was incredibly knowledgeable and I just liked being in his company and he was very um, uh, welcoming uh, when I would stay here and work for a couple days. I stayed with him, so mm-hmm. we carpooled back and forth and I got to know His friends outside of the museum and his, you know, favorite eateries and uh, that that sort of thing here in town in Martinsville, and I loved it. And I was, I was, I was crushed when he passed away, Um, uh, because I thought the world of him. And he really was my connection to the museum. And I have to say that, you know, a few years after his death, I didn't come back to the museum because I was so. Wrapped up in him, you know, he he was the museum for me, and it wasn't till a few years later that, through the radio program "What's Bugging You," apparently I have many fans out there. One of them being uh, Lavar Stoney, who was then the Commonwealth Secretary of uh, Virginia, um, and put my name in front of the governor and uh, uh, McAuliffe, and that's how I wound up being on the the board of trustees. And I thought this would be a good opportunity for me. To get back into the fold. And so my very first meeting was in Waynesboro, uh, there, and that's where I met Cal. Uh, he just happened to be at the meeting, and um, Cal and I just clicked like that, and I haven't missed a beat since. I'm back in the fold in the museum. You know, it's, uh, it's, it's great to be back after a bit of a hiatus there, and I've always thought this institution is really lucky to have somebody like uh, Dr. Ivanov. Uh, running the uh, uh, recent invertebrates department.
0: Yeah, and in fact, it, it looked like uh, earlier today he had you doing some sort of incredibly <laughs> tedious Bartleby the Scrivener-style uh, beetle well, identification. I,
1: I, I look at it as he, I think he gave me an opportunity to correct some of the possible mistakes I made yeah. <laughs> 20 years ago, but also to, uh, a lot has been happening in this field in the last 20 years and you know the last time i looked at parts of the collection was 20 years ago and now publications have come out in the last five ten years that have updated identifications or taken species that were difficult to identify and separated them into two distinct species i now have a chance to go back and bring the collection up to date because cal is very interested in uh... databasing the collection and what that means is is entering all the information that's on those little tiny labels mm. on each and every specimen and making it available to people online like myself researchers who want to see the records the museum has because it's very difficult to just travel and spend time uh... in museums these days but you can go online and get a wealth of information so that's what i'm trying to do here is uh... you know get the collection up to date and um make sure things are correctly identified where I can, and then they can start this database process. Exciting things. You call it tedious. To me, it's very therapeutic. You know, With all the other hubbub I've got going on, this is my quiet moment. I can just focus on this, and it's something I can get done <laughs> yeah. in a finite period of time there is something satisfying about you know being
0: able to look at a finished product at the end of the day. all my, all my you know. projects take several years, and
1: sometimes that wears on <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: me. <laughs> that is understandable. But well, speaking of uh, uh, changes in this field, uh, you went on a recent insect collecting trip. and if you don't mind hanging around, I was wondering if we could record a uh, part 2 of this podcast for listeners to Gosh, listen to. if you to. think anybody
1: will come back and listen? I'd be happy to.
0: <laughs> I think they will. Okay. I think they will. Sounds good. All right. Well, thank you so much, Art, and uh tune in soon for the thrilling conclusion to my interview with Dr. Arnett.